Welcome to the Daily Bolster. Each day we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Welcome to the Daily Bolster. I'm Matt Blumberg, co-founder and CEO of Bolster, and I'm here today with my friend Chad Dickerson. Uh, Chad is uh, a CEO coach, uh, and uh, he has a provocatively named firm, uh, Strong Back, Open Heart, uh, which I'll ask about in a few minutes. Uh, Chad was the former CEO and before that CTO of Etsy as well. So Chad, welcome to the Daily Bolster. It's great to be here, Matt. So um, I love doing these Friday uh, in deep with interviews um, because we really get a chance to understand, you know, sort of the arc of someone's career and things that they've learned along the way, um, which uh, I, I just think puts the CEO job in in great context for people. Um, so uh, when I think about your career, I, you know, the, the point where I met you, you were CTO of Etsy, about to mm-hmm. become CEO of Etsy. Um, but you had actually been um, in technology for a while before that. And if I remember correctly, you, I think you were a reporter. Um, I was a columnist. You were so, a yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I was. Before, before that, and then worked, you know, on the West Coast in some, uh, you know, in a bunch of uh, kind of early technology companies around, yeah. um, around news and media. So would love to sort of hear how you, how you got, how you transitioned into engineering from journalism uh, and, uh, you know, sort of the, the first couple of jobs you had in technology. Yeah, I, in a lot of ways, I got really lucky um, and kind of like being in the right place at the right time. Um, so I, I grew up in North Carolina. And as a kid, I always read the newspaper, like starting at like five years old. And the newspaper I read was the News and Observer in Raleigh, North Carolina, which still exists. But um in the 90s, it was one of the last kind of family-owned newspapers before all the consolidation in the newspaper industry. So in my kind of child's mind, I thought, you know, one day, if I'm successful in life, I'll get to work at the News and Observer. Like, I'd seen, like, all the president's men, and I I love this idea of, like, the newsroom and people dashing around and, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, but the reality was a little different. I I went to Duke, and I got, I got an undergraduate degree in English literature, like uh, focused on Shakespeare. And uh, I graduated. Like, like, like every good CTO, by the way. Exactly, like every good CTO. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there weren't a lot of people beating down my door in 1993 to hire me as a uh, uh, English major. So actually, much to my parents' chagrin, after they had spent all this money for me to go to Duke and everything, um, I was actually delivering pizza to pay the rent and I also got, had a second job and I got a job, kind of a clerical job at the News and Observer, which is kind of like my dream workplace. Um, but where it connects to technology is I was doing clerical work like data entry and filing in a room where they were building um, some of the first websites um, on the internet. So the News and Observer was, I think either the first or the second daily newspaper on the web in the United States. The San Jose Mercury News might've been slightly ahead and so I did what what actually became a habit of mine later in my career. I did my job and I did it well and it delivered at a high quality, but I just kind of walked around and talked to people and asked questions. And before I knew it, one of the, the people I worked with um, in that room where I was filing said, hey, like, do you want to learn SQL? And over about a year of me like staying late in the office, they had an internet connection, which is really novel at that time. I taught myself how to do SQL and then they taught me how to write kind of back-end web applications. And um, 
I would say about a year and a half, it was almost like night school. I was kind of like an amateur Unix systems administrator and a programmer, and I was doing real programming work um, for the newspaper. And so that's how I got started. Um, I didn't have permission to do most of the things I was doing, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, the contacts I made there uh, really kind of led to everything else that came later. And um, is that what propelled you to the West Coast? Hey, I'm in technology. It's the it's the beginning of the internet. Well, I was coding probably like late 1993, early 1994. I remember being at work when people were talking about Mosaic, the first browser or the first kind of usable browser coming out. Um, one of my colleagues who taught me how to code interviewed for a job in Atlanta as the webmaster for the Atlanta newspaper. And he decided he didn't want to move to Atlanta and he told them they should talk to me. So I had kind of a brief tour in Atlanta. I went down to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution interviewed and they hired me at age 23 with like six or nine months of experience to run their web operation. <laughs> Uh, and that was my first legitimate job where I entered kind of as a kind of a real technologist. And then after nine months there, I got call, a call from CNN, which was just down the street. And that was kind of my my big dream job. I used to watch CNN a lot when I was a kid um, and love news. So I worked there for probably three years and um, worked on CNN.com in the very earliest days, which is the largest news site on the web at the time, and then helped build CNN and Sports Illustrated which was the first joint venture between uh, Turner Broadcasting and Time Warner. And it's actually where I learned what a corporate merger looks like. And what did it look like? It looked like me having, I think I had seven bosses in nine weeks <laughs> and kind of comically one of my last of the nine or seven bosses um, was an Anderson consultant. And in our first one-on-one, -on -one, he asked me if I could help him get paid. Like he didn't know how to navigate the finance system. So it was kind of like, I don't know if you've ever read Catch-22, the novel. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of a corporate version of this like absurd, you know, uh, the absurd feeling that you get about the military reading Catch-22. But then the thing that took me to the West Coast was um, I was a big reader of Salon. You know, I was kind of literary in my interest and that sort of thing. And I noticed they were hiring a VP of technology CTO. And I, I remember I wrote a cover letter to them. This is like 1998. And I think the opening line to my cover letter was, I am the only person who will apply for this job who has read all of Shakespeare's plays and sonnets. <laughs> and I had an you interview. Gotta like, like You got to yes. pr prove out the value of that English. Yeah. <laughs> and so I went there and uh, Salon was a really amazing, exciting place. We actually went public in 1999 as part of like the dot-com boom. So I was like right in the white hot center of that. And just as a kind of a trivia point, um, our IPO is a Dutch auction mm. and the bank that took us public, WR Hambricht, um, was testing out the Dutch auction because they had bigger ideas for it. And the next company to go public under the Dutch auction uh, and WR Hambricht was Google. Google, yeah. So I got to see the mechanics of of that. Our IPO did not go as well as Google's IPO. <laughs> I don't even, is Salon still independent? I Salon I... is independent. What, I guess, you know, what does independent mean? But it, I lost the lineage of it somewhere, but it still exists. Still exists. Yes. Um, and then you did a tour duty at Yahoo for a few years. Yes. A few different yeah. Yeah. And 
And just as a as a quick side note, just before Yahoo, I was at InfoWorld, the IDG uh, publication. Right, and right. so I, I wrote a column. That's where I was a columnist for four and a half years. I wrote a weekly column called CTO Connection for CTOs. And, uh, you know, four and a half years, weekly column, I wrote, you know, 200 plus columns on deadline, just like everyone who worked there. And that was like an amazing experience. But that was like my last media job where I, and I, the first one where I actually wrote. Uh, were you cool. also on the technology team there and the writing was a side game? I was the CTO. So like the, the whole idea was that I would do the job and also write about the job. And it's like a little bit harder than you think, because one time I wrote about something that vaguely alluded to like a performance issue, like on my team and the whole team was upset with me. And one time I wrote something that was really vague about struggling with a particular vendor without naming the vendor. And the, the CEO of the vendor wrote to me and said, I know that was us and we we're really upset. So it's kind of most of the time it worked, but people got really upset with me. Um, at times, I wrote a really critical thing about Lotus Notes, and we we heard from IBM on that. They were a big advertiser, but we did have editorial independence, and right. uh, yeah, I didn't get too much coming down on me for all that. <laughs> um, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't realize you were you were doing both. That's uh, so you you were pursuing your original dream while yeah. pursuing your current vocation. Yeah, and it was fun. Like I. I remember once, you know, 9-11 happened during that period. And so I had a ton, I knew like a lot of Fortune 100 CTOs who were reading my column and, you know, New York needed help. And and so uh, like I helped organize, we had a, what we called a CTO network and I helped organize some relief work and technology help like post 9-11. So there was, it was an amazing job. And like, I got to network. That was one of my best networking jobs, honestly. I remember I was like, shooting pool and drinking beers with uh tony scott who was the cto of general motors at the time and i was you know even though it was a info world was really influential i mean i was running a team of probably 20 and i'm hanging out with the cto of general motors just talking shop um what'd you learn from him um i mean this i learned that and I, I, from, from Tony and many other people I, I worked with is that like in a technology organization, especially at scale, a lot of the problems are culture and people. And, and I still believe that to be true. Like, I think we tend to over-focus on technology, especially in engineering circles, but yeah, the problems and challenges I've had with people have been really consistent regardless of how technology changes. Yeah. And you, so you must've, so you were then at Yahoo for a few years and you must've had a pretty yeah. big team at Yahoo, right? You were there kind of at peak, peak Yahoo years, right? Yeah. I, I joined in 2005 and the, I was kind of part of a wave that at the time people were calling, uh, I think some journalists called it the flickerization of Yahoo because Flickr had just been acquired. And, um, you know, for people out there who don't remember Flickr, maybe a few, it's a photo sharing site started by Stuart Butterfield, who later went on to start Slack and Katerina Fake, um, his then wife. And Katerina and I were colleagues at Salon. And so they were kind of, both of them were like magnets for talent at that time. And Flickr was one of the first social apps with, with kind of tagging and sharing and commenting and all that sort of thing. So um, yeah, I was there from 2005, 2008, and that spanned that, that era, but also 
the period where Microsoft came in and made a hostile offer to buy Yahoo. And I got to see all of that up close, but um, mostly what I was working on was kind of what I would call like the innovation teams at Yahoo. So there was a, a group called Brickhouse where we had our own office in San Francisco, the main office down in Sunnyvale. And we had freedom to, to try to build kind of new products without the constraints of kind of the main sort of Yahoo organization. And I learned a ton about what it means to kind of be an innovation team that works apart from like the main, the main line. Um, number one, we didn't make any revenue and the people who did make revenue running things like Yahoo Mail, um, I think resented us in a lot of ways. <laughs> and, you know, at the time there was like a little bit of a rivalry in that way, but like, as I've gotten more mature as a business person, I totally understand why they resented us because <laughs> we were getting, you know, a lot of right, you were getting sort all of buzz. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we got to play around with Ruby on Rails, which was new at the time. And, you know, they had to continue with PHP and all kind of the standard stuff. So it was, uh, I could, I could talk a lot about that. <laughs> uh, we, you know, obviously much, much smaller scale, but we had a, a labs team at return path. That was yeah. that the, the mid-sized company version of that. Uh, and the thing that we tried to do, I'm not sure how successful we were, but we tried to rotate people through yeah. the team so that um, people felt like they'd have an opportunity to be on that team for a, for a tour of duty if they wanted. Yeah. Yeah. That's smart. Um, yeah. I think in general, what I learned is that, and you know, I don't, I haven't seen it in action in other places, but I think if, um, if the core problem that a company is trying to solve is, you know, trying to innovate more, I think that if you kind of put the innovation off to the side, then I think it hurts the company's ability to innovate kind of at the core because it's it's almost like outsourced to someone else. And so my philosophy now is that you have to try to innovate around your core products. So it doesn't mean that everyone can be working on innovation, but at some point you have to innovate in right. your core. Yeah. So what brought you uh, back to the East Coast to become Etsy's CTO? Yeah, like <laughs> part of it was honestly, looking back, like Yahoo's dysfunction. <laughs> um, and I was a very loyal soldier and and uh, I had a really great experience at Yahoo. Like I, I got to know Jerry and David, the founders. And, you know, one of my, my biggest memories is we had a like top 150 people at Yahoo uh, met once and Jerry had put that together. And it was like an offsite and they brought in a special guest. This was like in 2007. And we were all wondering who it was. And it turned out to be Steve Jobs. And so, yeah. <laughs> and so I was sitting there amongst this like top 150 people at Yahoo, listening in a private setting to Jerry doing a fireside chat with Steve and asking him for advice and Steve not holding back. <laughs> right. and he, was not, he was not known for holding back. <laughs> no, he's not holding back. He did it in, I think, a very Steve Jobs sort of way. He was like very positive and talking about like all the great things Yahoo had done. But he said, you know, you're doing too many things and Yahoo means too many things. And you have to like pick a smaller number of things and do them really well. And so, so that was, that was really exciting. Um, but uh, yeah, what, what brought me out to the, to the East coast um, I, when, when Microsoft made that offer, everything kind of went haywire inside the company because there was a visceral reaction against 
you know, the evil company from Redmond coming down and acquiring Yahoo. And this is another big lesson I, I think I learned in business. I think Yahoo kind of overreacted. And instead of looking at the, the offer kind of on its merits, they began like fighting it off and, and put in a poison pill. And what happened with the poison pill specifically is basically if, if a merger happened and your job was eliminated, then all of your stock would vest no matter how much, you know, what the window on that vesting was and you would get like a big bonus. So there were people inside the company out of self-interest that was meant to make the deal more expensive. They were kind of like, Hey, you know, <laughs> I could walk good. away. Yeah. And so loyalist, I wasn't really one of them, but even the loyalists were starting to question like why they should stick around. But, um, Katarina Fake actually uh, was an angel investor in Etsy. What a great thing to be. Um, and we had been friends from, from Salon and, and we're working together at Yahoo. And she told me that the Etsy engineering was kind of not in good shape. And I, it would be really helpful if I would talk to the founders. And so I, I put that off for, for weeks and months. I had a you know, very busy life and traveling to New York wasn't kind of on my list of things to do. I was renovating a house. Um, in Berkeley, I'd just gotten married. And so it probably took three months to make that happen. And so I came out and it wasn't originally, it wasn't about me like interviewing for the CTO job, but by the time it happened, they asked me if I would interview for the CTO job. And so my, my wife, Nancy and I went out, I, I still have an email that I sent to some friends that I said, Hey, I'm going to Brooklyn and it's going to be a vacation interview. I'm just like going to have a good time in New York and see what's up. And Nancy and I had this magical weekend in New York where we, we were like walking through Central Park and we heard some music and it was like not humid in July. And it was, you know, we walked in on like a Bon Jovi show and everyone was having a good time and we had great food and the city was just kind of magical. So we interviewed at Etsy. I could really see how I could help. Everything was really, really clicking. And on the way back, on the flight back, we had been here maybe five days. We said, you know, if this comes through, let's do it. And so it did come through. I remember calling the contractors who were working in our house and telling them not to lay down the expensive style in the kitchen to like get cheaper tile because we were going to make our house into a rental. And um, there's still a lot of work to work to be done, but we decided to move to New York. So, uh, so you come to New York, you're, you're yeah. CEO of Etsy, not very long, a couple of years, year and a half. Almost three. Oh, three years. Okay. Yeah, it was long. <laughs> and, then, and then you get tapped to replace Rob as the um, yeah. founder, as the CEO. Yep. How how did that come about? What, what was your reaction to that? Yeah, well, like Etsy has a kind of a complicated history for such a kind of outwardly friendly company. Um, so, you know, I joined, when I joined Rob Kalin, the founder was CEO and Maria Thomas was um, COO. And so when it was announced that I was joining, Maria became CEO and Rob became chief creative officer. And this was all engineered by Rob as a founder. And so I worked for Maria. And, um, you know, I think it's safe to say, even in a public setting, Maria and Rob are extremely different people. <laughs> I think they would both agree. And so, you know, Rob, insanely creative, like brilliant. Um, Maria, very businesslike, you know, has an MBA and both with kind of amazing qualities. And so I think um, Maria, CEO, like drove the company 
to break even, I think, um, which is an amazing thing to do for an early stage internet company. And I think Rob decided as kind of the founder and someone still on the board that he, that he wanted to come back. And so Rob came back in Sorry, late I 2009 this, yeah. and Maria stepped aside, but I think Maria did a, a great job and, and deserves to be commended. And so Rob came back and the company had grown. When I joined Etsy, the whole company was 40 people. And by the time Rob had come back, it was about 175 people. And I had basically rebuilt the engineering team and taken the engineering team from one that wasn't functioning very well to uh, a really talented team. I recruited some of the best people from the West Coast. Um, you know, the language that we used on the on the platform was PHP. I actually recruited Rasmus Leerdorf, who invented PHP as an advisor and eventually got him to join as an engineer. Um, so that kind of talent and John Alspa, who, um, I would say like popularized and almost like invented DevOps. And so we had this amazing team. Um, and so I think, you know, Rob, as the company was getting better, Rob wasn't this, it was Rob's first job was Etsy. And so I think Rob as a leader, wasn't, wasn't scaling. Like he, you know, maybe wasn't the right person at the, at that scale which is something I learned later, which we could talk about, <laughs> about myself. Uh, and so, um, yeah, the board appointed me as, as CEO in the summer of 2011. And so by then the company was, I would guess about, I don't know, 250 people, maybe doing 30 million in revenue, 40 million revenue. And uh, the thing I remember the most is how everything changed overnight. Um, because when you look at it, like in an org chart, going from CTO to CEO is kind of like one step up. But what I started to understand is it was more like an order of magnitude step up and, um, running a functional team while it's really valuable experience and it's its own set of stresses, like being responsible for the whole ecosystem, um, of the company. Like I started to understand that you know, even though I think I was a very responsible CTO, like I could always in the back of my mind say, you know, if marketing would just get their act together or if BD would do the right deals, like whatever. But to be sitting in the CEO seat, as you know, like any problem in the company, like you, you can blame yourself. <laughs> and so, so what, what yeah. That was interesting was that that's not the normal, uh, that's not necessarily the normal transition that the, that the board looks for, yeah, right? Right, right. Placing the founder with the CEO at that scale, you'd think, oh, they're going to hire from the outside. Yeah. If not hire from the outside, you would think, oh, they're going to appoint the obvious number two person. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily CTO. I, I would guess that's the minority of, of internal C CEO promotes. Yeah, without a doubt. And and this is, you know, a lot of people probably don't know this story because it's, it's kind of, I don't think it's probably been discussed publicly, but... Um, uh, Adam Freed had come in as COO when, when Rob was uh, CEO and Adam had built early teams at Google. I think he was like employee number two or 300, um, at Google. He spoke nine languages, Harvard MBA. Um, Adam's just like an amazing, amazing business person. He went on to be CEO of teachers pay teachers. And there was this moment where I think the board wanted to make a change and Adam was without a doubt like the textbook, he was the COO, he had an MBA, he had scaled teams at Google, he had, he checked all the boxes. 
but I'll never forget um, Adam somewhere along the way when the board approached him, and I think they did approach him, Adam said that he didn't want to do it. He didn't think he was the right person for Etsy, but that he would remain a COO and he would work for me. And he thought that I was the right person. And so I, you know, I owe Adam a lot. I thought that that was in a world of kind of like naked ambition and people positioning themselves. I was kind of blown away by that. And so um, Adam and his partner eventually started a family not long after that. So I think Adam left about a year later. It was completely like friendly and amicable. I'll never forget, like he announced that he was leaving and he knew Kara Swisher and Kara Swisher called. And I remember Kara Swisher was on speakerphone with Adam and me. And she was like, come on, Adam. Like you're not, everyone says they're going to spend time with their family. You're not going to spend time with their family. What's the truth? And we were like, he's going to spend more time with his family. that's actually true (laughs) and that's that's actually what happened so um so i think that i think you know honestly the board was surprised i think they were surprised by adam's reaction um and uh you know but after that they said okay like you're our guy and i remember when (laughs) yeah i remember when fred made fred wilson made the call and he said good luck (laughs) um so yeah that was yeah 2011 so, and then you had an amazing journey, um, scaling that company from probably a couple hundred people to eight, 900 by the time you left. I think it was probably about 1100. 1100 yeah. Right. Uh, taking it public, yeah. right. First time CEO. Taking it public. public. Um, and I think the, the GMB 10 X and revenue, I think 14 X, um, you know, our, our take rate went up during that period. That's why the revenue kind of outpaced the GMB and, uh, Yeah. yeah. And scaled the brand too. I mean, Etsy is still today is a is a very distinct and and kind of beloved brand. Yeah, yeah, and I think it, I think it's got a very long future ahead of it because it's, it's got, um, yeah. There's a, the the nature of Etsy is there's nothing else like it, and you buy merchandise that on Etsy that you can't find anywhere else, and that that was always the number one reason when we surveyed buyers, why do you shop on Etsy? And they say to find things I can't find anywhere else. And so even with Amazon coming after Etsy, so I also got to experience that Amazon launching a direct competitor right before our IPO. Oh, no, I remember that because (laughs) you and I were in the CEO forum together then. And that was the the emergency session one day. Yeah. And I, I knew that was a possibility, but when it happens to you, like, you know, we're, we're preparing for our IPO. You can imagine going into Wall Street investors and they're like, are you worried about Amazon? And you and you can legitimately say no. And they're like, yeah, right. <laughs> There's always like, we're, like, we're worried about Amazon. So I saw that. And, uh, you know, as you know, like, uh, you know, building an executive team as a company is growing is really hard. So I had to iterate a couple times on the executive team and like how that worked. Um, but I, you know, I learned a lot about it. And eventually, as you and I've talked about many times, my time was up. And so um, after two years as a public company, you know, I was replaced. And, uh, you know, what I was saying earlier about a CEO not scaling into a certain stage, like I think, you know, looking back in the benefit of hindsight, like that wasn't, you know, I wasn't right for that, that stage. So, uh, so yeah, I learned, I learned a lot from that experience too. When you think back on the, um, the years of running Etsy, 
um, what are you most proud of? And what's the do-over you wish you had? Yeah, I mean, I'm most proud of, um, I think it was just like a good company, like on every level. Um, so, you know, when I, when I left or when I was asked to leave, I remember thinking, and even now it's like a little bit frustrating. Um, we had a net promoter score for buyers. I think that was around 80, which was equal to like Apple and Amazon. Um, my, uh, glass door rating was like 98%. Um, sellers loved us. Like our retention rate was like 90 plus percent. Um, it was just, you know, really amazing. The only people I didn't make happy were investors. <laughs> and so um, I'm really proud that the employee satisfaction was so high, the customer satisfaction was so high. Um, and so, but I think that relates to the second question, um, the do-over. I'll give you a few do-overs. <laughs> I think that um, I really believed that the pricing that in the marketplace was um, kind of a feature and not a bug. So we charged three and a half percent per transaction, which was really, really low compared to other marketplaces. And, um, you know, looking back, I think that we were, that kind of constrained our ability to spend money on marketing and to take risk on marketing. And so I think had we raised the fee from like three and a half percent to 5%, which still that would have been low. It still would have been low. Um, we would have had a lot more money to spend on marketing and kind of experiment with. And so, um, you know, Josh Silverman, who took over uh, after me, that's one of the first things I think he did was raise the prices. And so I think um, one of the things I do in my coaching, which we'll probably talk about, is, you know, lead people through various scenarios. And one of the exercises I've done with people is an exercise you've probably heard of called fire yourself. Like if if you got fired today and like a new person came in, like what would they do? What opportunities would they see? And like what changes would they make? And it's kind of a challenge to challenge yourself to make those yourself <laughs> right. so you don't have to get fired. So I think, I don't, I don't know if I did the fire yourself exercise, but I think had I done that, it would have been like raise the prices like ASAP. Um, not, not to gouge, but I think it was three and a half to 5% was like a really, um, almost like a simple fare, even for just inflation and that sort of thing. And I think related to that, and this might be the most useful for people who are thinking about being a CEO more than CEOs. Um, obviously I came from the technology and product side and my early, so I was CEO for six years. I'd say the early part of my time as CEO, there was a lot of product development that needed to be done. And when I, when I left, like 50% of our revenue was from services that didn't exist when I started. So we built a lot of revenue producing products during that period. But I leaned really hard on product and engineering, which really worked during that time. But I think as our organic growth started to taper a little bit, it was still strong. What I could have done was instead of leaning into my area of strength and really focusing on product and engineering, which I knew really well, was to lean more into discomfort and spend a lot more time not being a marketer, but like learning about what good marketing is and kind of building up my skills there where I was weakest. So um, I think that I started doing that kind of later on as CEO, but I wish I had started doing that like from the very beginning. And like from a practical standpoint, I think that would just mean meeting CMOs 
just from a networking standpoint, having coffee, like understanding what good is. And, you know, I could spot a good technologist from a mile away, but like I was still learning how to evaluate marketing leaders. So I would have done that. I think leaning into, it's a little bit counter to like Peter Drucker kind of, you know, focus on your strengths. But I think it's what I'm, to be a little more nuanced about it, figuring out what your weakness is and focusing on maybe not learning that skill, but like really, really bolstering your, your talent around, uh, around you in that area. And so that was marketing for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think CEOs who get, who get promoted out of a functional area always have a lot to learn and then always have a, um, uh, I think an awkward relationship with the function they left. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'll never forget my first week as CEO. There were, I had two back-to-back meetings, one with the engineering team or the engineering leaders and one with like some business people in the company. And the engineering team came in and they said, I feel like they said, I feel like you've abandoned us. Cause like the day, the day I became CEO, I unsubscribed from all the mailing lists, got out of all the Slack channels. And I was like, you're running technology. I don't want to look like I'm meddling. So they told me that. And then the next meeting, a business person, maybe it's like a BD person said, I feel like all you really think about is engineering. <laughs> and, and I was just like, oh, so. Can't win. Right. And I think to a great extent, and I understand this, like, because I had been CTO, that was, I was kind of had that identification like the whole time, but I tried the, it's funny, the engineering, some of the engineering leaders called me a suit after uh, I became CEO. I don't know if they were joking or not, but it probably doesn't matter. <laughs> All right. So in your, in your current world, you're a coach. Yeah. You coach yeah. CEOs. <clears throat> so after you left Etsy and took a little downtime, uh, yeah. you started coaching, you did some work with, um, with our mutual friend, Jerry Colonna at Reboot. That's right. Uh, Jerry's yeah. also going to be on the show this season. Oh, awesome. <laughs> uh, his new book, he has a new book coming out uh, yes. called Reunion, which is very good. Um, and then after a while, you started uh, doing it on your own as well. Um, so uh, so let's start with um, the name of your firm. Yes. Uh, yeah, so the name Strong Back, Open Heart. Actually, the concept, it's not... I guess I discovered it. It already existed, but um, working with Jerry Colonna as my coach. Um, and I was trying to articulate the kind of organization that I wanted to build at Etsy, kind of like the character of the organization. And um, the the simple way to explain it is like, in from a leadership standpoint, is the strong back is fiscal responsibility, planning, goal setting, giving feedback, like all of the the work of creating an operating cadence and an operating rhythm and the open heart, I think is, um, kind of the human side and kind of understanding people and motivation and culture and sort of, you know, dealing with how people feel and that sort of thing. And so the idea is I really thought and still think that the best organizations are the ones that have both of those in balance. It's not actually, I, I was thinking about this before I read Radical Candor, but um, the grid that Kim Scott has, I can't remember what the axes are, but like basically if you're too overweighted on kind of the open heart side, you have what Kim calls ruinous empathy. Like you're, you're almost like too understanding and you kind of get caught up in others' dramas. But if you're too much kind of on the strong back, like it's all operations, like kind of no kind of humanistic 
touch, then you kind of lose the sense of like purpose and connectedness that's required in a company. And so the co my coaching firm is named that because, you know, on a good day, I like to think <laughs> that I can help people find that area of balance. Yeah. And yeah. What? But it's, it's, you know, we live in a world of kind of binary sort of dualistic thinking. And I think kind of holding those two concepts in your mind at the same time is where the real power is. Yeah. I mean, look, it's one of the things about the CEO job. You constantly have to hold two opposite things in your mind. Yes. Whether it's those two things or, or any two others. Yeah. Even the simple idea of like, we're doing really well, but we're also not making also any not progress. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I actually, you know, I, I've, I've always admired the way you've run your companies. And I think, you know, the way you run return path, I don't think I've ever said this to you before, but I think some of those principles of like the strong back, open heart, like I see that really present in the, in the work that you do. Um, well, hopefully, hopefully uh, true at Bolster as well. So. Yeah. Yeah, definitely true at Bolster. Uh, it's a lot easier with, a, with, you know, 30 or 40 people on a team than it is with hundreds and hundreds, but yes. Definitely. <laughs> uh, so what's your favorite part about coaching CEOs and what's your least favorite part about coaching CEOs? Yeah. My favorite part is I think more than any other kind of constituent or person in the coach's life, perhaps, or in the CEO's life, other than perhaps like spouse or really close friends, I get to see like the reality of what it's like to run a business. And so, you know, there are times that I read like a media interview with the CEO I'm working with and this person saying like, this is going so well and this is so great. And like, I know that that's like <laughs> not the whole story. And so um, I'm really fascinated with kind of people. I think when I, when I majored in English lit and like studied Shakespeare, I think it was like, I'm just fascinated with human nature. And so to see and, you know, be a part of someone's kind of struggles and triumphs, I think is, you know, kind of like an honor because I get to see it up close, like in, in kind of all its messiness and, and glory. Um, so yeah, just getting to know the person as a person is probably the best part in that way. The worst, what is the worst part? Um, yeah, I never thought about that too much. I think that this is not so much about well, I guess this this would work. Like, I also see some of the like bad behavior that happens in companies and like on boards. And sometimes I get really, there's some great boards out there and some great investors and that kind of thing. But like, I get, it's kind of like upsetting to me when I see people get treated in kind of inhumane ways or people like not being honest and giving like the hard message and instead, you know, sort of backstabbing, I guess. <laughs> and so seeing that ugly side, I think is, can be kind of painful. And I kind of can feel that through the clients sometime when they're, when I think they're being treated unfairly. Yeah, that, I can, I can see that. I mean, look, it's, it's bad when it happens to you. It's gotta be frustrating when it happens to the person you're advising. Yeah. 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 And I, I would, I would also add that like, I, I didn't realize I started started coaching like how much I had seen in a business. And I've, I've probably coached in 40 or 50 companies now. And I feel like I've seen almost nothing that's totally surprising to me. 
And so sometimes you see with an inexperienced leader, the people around them almost like prey on their naivete and right. whether it's investors or more senior executives. And so I try to help people navigate those things and, you know, spot problems and issues. But that's another thing that really bothers me. Like when I see an investor trying to tell a uh, CEO that something is normal when it's not or, you know, something like that. Yeah, with with asymmetric information. Oh, this is normal. We do this all the time. You're saying right. CEO that has an experience set of one. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, but you know, there. I don't want to sound like I'm down on investors because I think, um, like you and I have worked with some really great investors, and the great ones are incredible in their sort of personhood and ability to like deliver returns. And so yeah. I'm really amazed by that. All right, last question. Yeah. Uh, if you could give your younger self a piece of advice now, and let, let's say uh, shortly after you became CEO of Etsy, so not you don't have to yeah. go way, way back, but if you knowing what you know now as, as a coach to a number of CEOs could give your first time CEO self one piece of advice about scaling up as a leader, yeah. what would it be? Yeah. I would say take more breaks. Because I think that, um, like the whole time I was at Etsy, I was always there was so much going on, and like it seemed like every year was a whole new set of challenges. And so I spent a lot of time thinking, like I'm going to take a vacation, like in six months or or whatever. I didn't do a very good job of like planning vacations. And I think looking back, um, you know, I, I was there for nine years, and so and six years as, CT, as CEO, I looked back and I was like way more exhausted than I thought I, I was at the time. I think I was kind of like psyching myself out. Yeah. And uh, I think I it would have done me really good to just take a couple of weeks off, let the team run things <laughs> and just step away. But I, I, uh, I was just like holding on like a little bit too tight. Yeah, probably uh, would have been better for you and would have been better for your team. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And I, I'll never forget, like I, I, uh, I went to the doctor right post Etsy, like a stressful time. You know, I just left the company and a lot of my like numbers were like all over the place. And the doctor said, come back in a few weeks. Like, this is like odd. And I came back after like de-stressing for like a month and all of my like physical characteristics and numbers were better. And so I think the stress was just like coursing through my veins. <laughs> um, and a lot of the CEOs I speak with, I've gone through some transitions. Um, with, with some of my clients and, and I've heard similar things, but I think, uh, someone said to me, I didn't understand it at the time. It's, they say like, you know, don't, don't quit, just get rest. And then I didn't quit, but I think I, I needed to rest so that I would, you know, have more gas in the tank. Yeah. All right. Great advice to end on, uh, Chad Dickerson. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Matt.